Authors Over 50, Writing in Life's Sweetest Third. Authors Over 50's weekly podcast celebrates writers and their journeys to publication. Writing after 50 is a whole story on its own, so let's skip to Life's Sweetest Third and talk with authors about their journey from pen to publish. Welcome, I'm Julia Daly, your host, and I invite you to listen to interviews with writers who've achieved their goal of publishing a book just later in life. We've seen award lists for under 30 or under 40, but I've yet to see lists for those who've achieved a significant milestone of their own, launching a new career and publishing their first book after the age of 50. We will hear about these authors' inspirations, struggles, strategies, and the smell of that first book. These writers' journeys inspire me because I'm one of them. My guest today had a writing career in his 20s as a BBC comedy writer and then as a copywriter for one of the world's largest ad agencies. He continued in advertising when he moved to Cyprus as an agency creative director. He wrote his first book as a screenplay and then as a single copy, which he gave to his wife as a, crisp, a Christmas gift. He describes it as fact-based Fiction fantasy, which to him means that the basis of the story is factual, the fantasy evolves around the legend, and it has fictional characters. Welcome to Authors Over 50, Myron Edwards. Thank you, Julia. That's a really good intro. I'm very impressed. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Myron. Myron, our opening question is always, so what took you so long to write your first book? Um. Well, I... Uh... As you said, I was a BBC comedy writer. So from, from that perspective, I've been writing early in the 80s. Um, and it was, it was something that I got involved with purely by chance. Um, a, a mate of mine, he was working on Charing Cross Radio. Um, and, and basically, he asked my friend who I was in a band with um, to... Uh, to put some sketches together. Well, I've never written anything at all. Uh, uh, you know, I was in a band with, with a guy and uh, we decided, okay, we'll try and help him out and do some ca uh, comedy sketches for his hospital radio, which he, they played to the patients. So we had all this material left over from the, the hospital radio. And what we did then was we, well, we sent it to various comedy places and it got picked up by the, then the biggest two duo on the comedy circuit, which was the two Ronnies. And our, our gag got selected for the Christmas uh, show, which was huge, you know, audience of 50 million. It was unbelievable. And that kicked off my writing career up to a certain extent because I was working with my, my uh, compatriot, a chap called Phil Campbell. And uh, together, we started writing for various radio shows. Um, people like uh, Roy Hudd, who was a a great comedy actor and, a, and, a, and actually a very good actor as well. He had a, a program called the Hudlines. So uh, we worked on Hudlines. Uh, I also worked on a satirical program called Weekending. And that's where I met some of the doyens of, of BBC comedy. Um, I met people like Griffith Jones, uh, John Lloyd, who went on to do Blackadder. Um, so I, I was in or around that area. But um, I was married then in those days, and uh, my wife wanted me to concentrate on getting a 
proper job, as she called it, as opposed to me doing the, the freelance stuff, which I was doing. And then what happened was um, I got into JWT um, purely by chance because I was working in the travel business. That had been my job ever since I left school. And uh, when I got into the travel business, um, I worked for various uh, tour operators and various travel agents. And one of the travel agents I worked for, uh, he had what was called an in-house at J. Walter Thompson. Thompson's was the biggest advertising agent, well, probably at that time in the world. Um, so I, I was fortunate to work in the, the travel department as a travel manager. But they heard about my um, dalliances, if you like, into uh, BBC comedy. And they said to me, why don't you try the copy test? And I said, what's that? And they said, well, it's a, it's a way of finding out how good you are creatively. Um, why don't you try it? He said, I'll be honest with you. He said, no one's passed it in three years. So give it a go and see what happens. I passed it. Um, so they invited me to go up to the creative department. Uh, and I went up to, to the creative department and my creative director was a chap called Terry Howard. He, he, was a, he was a really very good copywriter and he was one of the stars of the agency. And I was lucky enough to work with him. And within 10 days, I'd written my first TV commercial. Well, Myron, you are a Brit living in Greece. How does that impact your writing journey for the good or not so good? Um, it gives me more scope. Uh, in terms of um, what I can do, um, particularly with my books, which are basically uh, Greek mythology. So they have the Greek mythology running through the theme. Um, and that I think I couldn't have done unless I was living here. If, if I was living in England and trying to write about Cyprus, I wouldn't have been anywhere close to getting it right. Um, that wasn't one of the reasons that I left England with the family. Uh, we left England because my kids were getting nowhere in uh, school and I wanted to give them a better education. So we decided to lock, stock and barrel to come over here. And uh, we were, the family was, some of the family was already over here. Uh, my mother-in-law was over here and so was my sister-in-law and her kids as well. So we joined up um, and we, uh, we came over and it was only purely by chance that prior to that, uh, a long time prior to that, I had got the idea for Mistress of the Rock, which is the first book. Well, you published in Cyprus, but with Amazon and purchases made online these days, I guess the impact for sales is lessened, correct? Uh, absolutely. Um, I, uh, Julia, the, the one thing that you have to have, um, apart from a lot of luck, is you, you've got to have an agent which will get you into the big five. I'm, I'm not being critical of the way that people want to uh, get their books in front of people and, and things like that, you know, self-publishing. And there are a lot of scams around, so people have to be aware of that. Um, but you also need to have somebody who's going to push your book. Otherwise, it will just be, a, a, it will be something that you did. Uh, it won't be of any value in that respect. And, and to a certain extent, I've had that running through my particular uh, venture as well. I've got a guy who's a, a very good guy. His name's James Hill. He runs Rock Hill Publishing in the States. Um, and he's my publisher. But we only publish print on demand. 
which means that if people don't want, uh, don't ask for the book, the book doesn't get printed. So things like your particular service to me are invaluable because it gives me a chance to talk about the books. But again, how long does that last for? Because the, the situation is, if your book isn't on a shelf, people won't buy it. Um, you know, you've got Amazon, you've got you've got all the various online sites. I've got my books on Amazon and everywhere else. But at the end of it, if people don't see it, don't publicize it, don't advertise for it, don't do enough social media or, or whatever, however you want to describe it. Having been in the advertising world, I know that products don't get bought unless you advertise for them. And that, this is the issue that I have. I, I've written three books, the trilogy's done. Um, and then I look around and I think to myself, why did I do it? Because nobody's reading it. Well, they will. You just got to figure out the challenges of publicity and, and use that advertising background and get that book in front of people. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, go, I go down that road. I've been down that road many, many times. Um, the one issue that I have that possibly could make a difference is I've got the um, film script in with a couple of production companies. And if that was to take off, the whole thing would take off. That, that, that would be the, the catalyst for it all. Because you know as well as I do, if somebody makes a film, then people will go to the locations where the film was made. Um, Cyprus is an incredible island. And, you know, that from that perspective, tourism-wise, if the book was to, to follow in the same, rail, the same realm as uh, the film, for example, if that was ever made, then you'd get the tourists coming in, you know, and you'd get a lot more interest in the subject matter. Now, I've, I've got a friend in England who likes this, the books, she's read them, and she's a teacher, and she's going to tell her pupils about the mythology of the books as well. It's not, you know, it's not highbrow mythology, it's, it's, it's contemporary mythology, put it, put it that way. So it appeals to across all different age groups. Well, tell us about the inspiration and how you determine the plots of your books. Purely by chance. And this is absolutely purely by chance. Before we came to Cyprus, my wife and I, who to be in those days, um, we went to Petrotu Romeo. And Petrotu Romeo is the birthplace of Aphrodite. There are three rocks at Aphrodite. Uh, Aphrodite's rock. And there's two other rocks. Now, when I was what, went there, I was completely uninterested in the subject matter of Aphrodite. We were just going in. We were just going in to have a lunch. That's all we were doing. And we were sitting in the lunch restaurant, in the restaurant having lunch. And I noticed something on the wall. Now, this is where the, the strangest issue comes in. I noticed something on the wall, and it was a, a poster, which was from the Cyprus Tourist Board. But it was an aerial shot. I've never seen anything like this before. And when I looked at the poster, I saw something in the poster, and that was my epiphany moment. I saw a figure in the sea. I couldn't find that poster ever again. And I've been to the Cyprus Tourist Board in London and asked them. I've been to the Cyprus Tourist Board in Limassol and in Nicosia and asked them, and they don't know what I'm talking about. So you tell me how I can see a poster which doesn't exist 
And yet I saw it, and that was the catalyst for the story. Now, the, the story is that there is something strange at Aphrodite's rock. It's a figure of a woman, and that figure of a woman kicked off my epiphany moment because at that time I then got the story that for Mistress of the Rock. That's how it all came about. Um, and what happened after that was another strange incident. There's a chap called Denny Rowland over here. He's a very good aerial photographer. He's, he's renowned for his, his photography. He's done a book called Cypress from the Air, which is excellent. Um, he's done a couple of other books. I can't remember their titles, but I remember Cypress from the Air. And I said to him, when we were on a book signing thing with my first book, um, he said to him, I said to him, Danny, you got any shots of aerial photography of the rock? And he said, um, yeah, I've got hundreds. I said, well, could you put them on a uh, disc for me so that I could look at them? Because you see, remember, do, do you remember all I saw was a poster which kicked off the whole thing, all right? How do I prove to people when the first thing they do is read the book and say, well, where's this bloody figure? You know, there's no figure, you know, at Aphrodite's Rock. So I needed to prove to people that there was an image at Aphrodite's Rock. So I said to Danny, have you got, um, you got, you got the poster? Uh, you got the pictures and, and things like that? He said, yeah. I said, can I have the disc? He said, yeah. So I took the disc away and I looked through, oh, I don't know how many dozens and dozens of pictures of the rock from different angles and everything else. And I was about three quarters of the way through. And then I came across one figure that looked a bit odd. And I thought to myself, that's not right. That is really strange. So what I did was I picked up the laptop and I turned it on its side. And when I turned it on its side, this image of this woman came out. Okay, it's not complete, but it's look, it looks like a figure. And, it, and it, it, I, I was mesmerized. I was kind of looking at it like this, and I called my wife in, and I called my daughter in, and I said, what do you see? Can you see it as well? Um, which is much like what happens in the book with Julia, uh, with Julie, the, um, the wife of the, the Richard, Richard Cole, who is the so-called hero. Anyway, there I was with this incredible image in my mind, and I'm thinking that's why it's called Aphrodite's Rock, because she's still there. That was my epiphany moment again on the situation. So you can see um, when I'm thinking about things like this, I'm thinking, why me? I, I don't understand. Why pick me? You know, because there must have been thousands of people have gone up. There used to be people that used to climb up on the rock and look down, but it's prohibited now. But nobody else saw it. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, okay, that's weird in its own right. So there I am with this image. And I've got that image in, uh, now on YouTube. So if anybody wants to go and look at it, but the image is there, which shows a figure in the water. Now, I will, you know, as I say, it is, it's there. It's, it's solid rock. That's what it is. You, you, can't, you can't do anything about solid rock, you know. The problem was I'd been with the publisher. The publisher in Cyprus, just to cut a long story short, went bust. 
but I had to honour my contract because I, I had a seven-year contract with him and all the rest of it. But he went bust, and that was to do with the Cyprus financial situation because at that time we were also in the process of very nearly making a movie. We, we'd had people like um, uh, Gillian, Gillian Anderson from the X-Files. We kind of half signed her up and we had Peter Andre from England. And we had all the crew, we had the production company, everything. And then from there, what, what transpired was I was looking around for another publisher and that's where I found Rock Hill. But in the meantime, I decided on a legend that is um, quite a lot of few, a few people know about it, but not everybody knows about it. It's called the Friendly Monster. It's a bit like the Loch Ness Monster idea, um, but it's it's basically a sea monster that, that exists in um, in in, in uh, areas like Larnaca and uh, Ayanapa. Myron, why don't you read a few, a few paragraphs for us to hear your tone and voice in the book? This is the first time that Richard, who's the hero of the story, comes in touch with Aphrodite, a woman that he has constantly seen for a few days and wants to make contact with her. Um, so we'll go from, from this area, okay? So... He got as close as he could without drawing further attention to himself, although clearly he must have, just by hovering so close to this beauty on the beach. He was mesmerised, speechless, and yet at the same time so very anxious to talk to her. But why? What, what was it about her that made him so desperate to first find her and then talk to her? He summoned the courage and drew a little closer. She turned and faced him. Her eyes pierced his, holding him transfixed, and neither did they blink or move, keeping him unbalanced, not knowing which way to look. Enchanted, he moved forward and tried to speak in his best guidebook Greek, Yasul Tigenes. It was a pretty reasonable stab at communicating. But she didn't react. She just kept looking at him. It was a look that implied previous knowledge of him. Imer Richard, Isis. It was a request for a word, any word. She said nothing, simply adjusted her body and offered another glimpse of her immaculate figure, saying with one gesture that she was fully aware of her powers of manipulation to entice and tantalise not just Richard, but any man. Slowly, she stood up. She was almost as tall as Richard, statuesque, proud and beautiful. Faced with her looking directly at him, Richard blurted and splurted in English like an excited child. I've seen you before. You were here. Just a few days ago, I saw you then and you tried to talk with you, but you were gone when I tried to find you. Without acknowledging anything he had said, she began to move away. He followed, still trying to make contact. Where are you from? He was so eager to hear her speak, he kept firing questions. What's your name? Where are you from? She stopped and pointed to the sea. The sea? The thalassa? Is that where you're from? Who are you really? Richard fired. She turned to him, lifted a hand and stroked his face. It was a soft touch, a lover's touch, a loving touch. There was magic in her fingers. He could feel his entire body shake and shudder. He had never been touched like that before, never experienced so much feeling. Her fingers had barely brushed his skin, but he felt as if he'd been given a new soul. 
her eyes kissing his. You know who I am, Richard. You brought me here. You brought me back. And when it's time, I will come for you. Very intriguing. Very nice. Did you do did you complete your research, all the the research that you did before you began writing, or do you do that as you go along? I probably did it as I went along. I write, I don't think one thing that I do, Julia, is I, I, I see the images in my mind and then write the words. That's the way I write as well. I, I write as though I can see it on the big screen. I can see what they're wearing, what they're eating, you know, uh, what they look like. Yes. So that's the way I write. Yes. Myron, our last interview question is always, our writers are over 50 or a unique set. Do you have any advice for writers 50 and above? It's a difficult question because in some ways people are at 50, they have um, already achieved a lot in their lives. So, yeah, I mean, something that I also didn't understand at the beginning, writing is very much an individual thing. You have to sacrifice a lot, and I do mean a lot, um, particularly family. You know, um, I could have spent more time with the family, uh, but instead I set locked myself away because it's the only way I can write in a, in a room to write. It's a passion. Make sure you want to do it. Well, thank you so much, Myron, for that advice and for being with us today. And we can now say that you're one of our authors over 50. Thank you, Julia. It's been a bit of pleasure. I'm sorry about the connections. Um, you know, one of those things. But um, it's a pleasure talking to you. And thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for joining us today. Please look for Authors Over 50 every Thursday when we will have conversations with accomplished debut novelists over the age of 50. Please subscribe and share with a friend. And check out my own publication journey after 50 at www.juliadaily, that's D-A-I-L-Y, like dailynewspaper.com. Until next time, keep reading and writing. And remember, it's never too late to fulfill a dream in life's sweetest third.